Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. My name is Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 15, The Doll's House, part six, Into the Night. Neil Gaiman, of course, is the writer. Mike Drigenberg as Pensler. Malcolm Jones III as Inker. R- original colorist was Robbie Bush. Um, for those of you using the recolorized version, that's Xylenol again. And Karen Berger as the editor, uh, Art Young as associate editor, Todd Klein as letterer, and a thanks to Sam Keith in the uh, balloon there. Yeah, does the annotated Sandman say anything about why there's this uh, this special note to Sam Keith here? It sadly does not. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like every time I have a question about something, uh, there is no answer in the annotated Sandman. So maybe there's some room for another annotated Sandman, though I suppose that is actually what this podcast is, so... There's that. Well, before we get into it today, I, I want to take a minute here just to update listeners about some new goals that we have over on the network's Patreon. Uh, these are relevant to work that we've been doing here on Hanging Out with the Dream King. We've heard from a number of supporters lately who've asked us to do a limited series covering books that are adjacent to the things that we talk about on, on the main shows here on the network. And, and I thought that was an awesome idea. So uh, we've gone ahead and done that. And what we did was a few months ago, we held a vote on Patreon to select two of the those books that were uh, suggested to us. And the big winner was The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. That wasn't really a surprise because that intersects with the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast and Elder Signs, so that really ran away with the vote. But the second book was G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. And so if you have been enjoying Gilbert as much as I have, or even just nearly as much as I have, half as much as I have, maybe we should say, uh, and you would like us to do more with Gilbert, uh, then please head on over to Patreon and join us at Every pledge is an absolutely huge help, and we're so grateful for all of it. And I should note here, too, while we're on the topic, that in between those books, uh, we have a goal to cover the first volume of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Uh, So there is a lot that we are working toward, and we would love your help to get there. And as uh, not only someone who is on the Clay Temple Media uh, Network, but also as a big fan of many podcasts myself, Patreon is a great way to support podcast networks and individual podcasts. It's just a couple bucks out of my pocket, and I know I'm giving back to people who are giving me hours and hours of content that I've enjoyed so much. Um, And there's a lot of work, particularly that Glenn puts into the production of all of this and hosting fees and all of that. So it helps cover expenses um, and makes it a lot easier for us to bring you um, the uh, content you want and the ability with Clay Temple Media to vote on which short stories you want to have covered and which additional things you want to have here and there, not just for this feed, but for all of the other ones, um, is a great opportunity. Um, and it's a one-stop shop for the entire network. So, uh, please go ahead and check out our Patreon and, uh, please consider throwing in a couple bucks if you can. We really appreciate it. So we're off into Into the Night, which um, we'll have to talk about what the title means later, but it took me a while to remember how long it's been. I think it's back in maybe issue two of this arc, this being issue six, when we actually last visited the house and saw Ken and Barbie and Chantel and uh, Zelda and everyone. And I felt it nice and kind of refreshing to visit them again, even though... 
you know, we hadn't really spent that many panels with them. When I look back at the total amount of time we've had, we've had more panels with Lucian than we've had with any of these characters. That's a bad example because I always will take more panels <laughs> with Lucian. But I, I think the listener knows what I mean. Um, but I think, Glenn, you probably do, too. It, it just it was nice and comforting to return to the house, um, which I think we even have in that first panel where we see Rose ascending the steps, uh, returning from the hospital. Yeah, and and really for us, the readers, it has been months since we've seen these characters. I mean, not just for us here on this show, but in real time when this was coming out, uh, it would have been months since people reading it at the time, reading it along with the publication of the individual issues would have seen these characters and seen what had clearly been presented to us at the beginning of this story arc as the home base for this storyline. One of the many dolls houses that we've got going on here in the show. And in fact, this whole first season scene really has to revisit, has to kind of reestablish all of that. And so we, we open with an establishing shot of the house in Florida, uh, this house where Rose has rented a room that she was staying at while she's searching for Jed. She, you know, she's walking up to the door here. And of course, what this lets us know following on collectors is that some time has passed since we left Rose, since we left Gilbert and Jed as well in the parking lot of the Empire Hotel in that last issue. And then we follow Rose into the, the kitchen where these other inhabitants of the house show up to check on Rose. Hal Carter, the the, the owner of the house, or, or well, I guess we don't know if he owns the house, but he, at least he is the landlord. Uh, but at any rate, he is there in the kitchen with a pot of tea. Uh, we learn that Jed has been moved to a nearby hospital and that Rose has actually been at the hospital for several days, so she has not come home to check in. Ken and Barbie are already in the kitchen and they are creepily wearing matching outfits. They're finishing each other's sentences. Chantel and Zelda, the spider sisters, they show up, they hover in the doorway. They express sympathies and well wishes. But Gilbert is not there. But of course, Gilbert already knows what's going on. And in fact, he knows more about what's going on than Rose herself does. And this lets us not just see these characters again, but also gives us uh, sort of some small talk, I guess, where we can check in on what has happened in the intervening days. So we learn that Jed is still unconscious, but that Rose needs a shower as well as some proper sleep. So she has returned back to this house. And Hal, who I think is probably the greatest landlord there has ever been, gives her some herbal tea to help her sleep. And then she just trudges upstairs. And and that's really all this is. It's, it's just short, it's a very quick introduction to this issue. And really, this is just here to remind us who these characters are, because as you've said, Brent, we haven't seen them for a very long time, but they're going to be the real characters in this issue. So we needed this reminder. And that is kind of utilitarian, right? Uh, thinking about the scene that way, it really does have this one purpose and this one purpose only. But I really admire the efficiency that Gaiman uses here in getting us straight into the story. I mean, he's able to do this and dispense with it very quickly, but also in a way that feels real. Yeah, he does a very good job with this. Although he um, somewhat uh, makes fun of himself in the script itself, the annotated Sandman actually includes um, a bit of the introduction that Neil had written in the script in which he wonders aloud about how challenging it can be when you're writing things and you're at that point where you're already set things up, but you need to do the payoff. And there's a couple paragraphs on that. I really don't want to um, read all of that, but uh, I encourage our listeners to check it out. But he makes a comparison to novels and he says, quote, it's bad enough when you're writing a novel and no one's seen it yet. It's worse when chapter one is already on the stands and the next four parts have been slash are being drawn. Um, I think when I have, uh, when I finish Stahl's house, I'll do some short stories, no continuing plot lines, no continuing characters, the death of Ele- element girl, 
A Dream of a Thousand Cats, Sex and Violets, Teeth. That's the one about the Tooth Fairy. Anyway, and um, as we'll see, those are the stories which we're going to get in the future. He goes on to explain that this issue is about dreams, which he says, I suppose most of Sandman's about dreams, but this is specifically dream oriented. We're in dreams, looking at different ways to relate dreams, the different dreams that people have, the ways that their dreams reveal them, expose them. Ken, for example, has little mean-minded scummy dreams. Barbie, who you'd expect to have similar dreams, dreams of a huge and beautiful world in which she's a glorious princess on a magical quest. Part Wizard of Oz, part My Little Pony, shimmering, crystalline, and colorful. Chantelle and Zelda have strange dreams. Chantelle dreams of sentences, words that move and echo and change. She's having an erotic relationship with a sentence. Zelda dreams her life story, her outcast childhood, her fascination with spiders, and the things of the grave, her relationship with Chantelle, her parents. Hal dreams about faces, nightmares of face facial mutilation. He doesn't dream of drag, not on the surface, just underneath, because all he dreams about is surface versus substance, identity versus appearance. And then he goes on to say, Gilbert doesn't dream of anything. He sits in the hospital and talks to Matthew the Raven. Jed, in the hospital bed, dreams of an empty dream world, a dream dome that's dissolving into the raw stuff of dream, melding and melting away, walking through the empty rooms with a feeling of dread, certain that something is following him. And Rose, Rose is in the center of everyone else's dream. Rose is where it all overlaps. Rose is the vortex. Um, and this, I wanted to call the uh, listeners' attention to this particular quote from the script early, one just these are the signposts of where we're going to go, but the discussion about what Jed is dreaming about. And I don't know that I ever really recollected Jed having kind of a point of view in this issue. So I don't know if it's something that was cut for space or if it's just something in the backdrop. But I think as we look at some of the backdrop of the panels, particularly when things start melding together, we might want to talk about if we see things that are evocative of what Jed might be experiencing. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea because as I was listening to you read that, that was my first thought was, well, that's not in here. Jed's dream is not here. So that must have gotten cut. But I think maybe it didn't. Maybe it's just something that we didn't notice before because we didn't know we should be looking for it in between the lines there. So yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. It's kind of a, I don't know, a scavenger hunt here as we go through and do the episode. But we should we should get into the heart of the episode here, which is going to be showing us the dreams of the inhabitants of the house, as you've just said. And, and, and what's going on here, right, is that Rose is a dream vortex. And as she sleeps and enters the dreaming, then she's going to wreak some, some havoc here. We will get some resolution to that we will also see something of gilbert and jed in this issue as well as you said brent but but all of this that's going on at the same time here gets really kind of mashed up together which is a great storytelling technique as you're reading it but for us to talk about it i think we're going to need to break it down a little bit differently than it appears on the page and so rather than go page by page through this issue which we get to do i think most of the time uh, i think let's do each of these dreams in turn and we'll, we'll try to treat every panel in each dream as sort of a single narrative, even though they're largely really spread out across several pages and, and even across several different scenes with things um, going on in between. And I don't know, I think we may as well start with the first dream that we see. We can at least do that properly in order. And that's Ken's dream, which uh, has a lot of similarities to Mark's dream back in 24 hours. Mark was the, the young businessman who was in town for that job interview. And Ken is dreaming about work and about money. 
We see the outside of his workplace. We see his boss. We see a stock ticker. And the text here is not entirely gibbish, but it is in snippets. And it seems like maybe it's bits of a conversation that Ken has had with his boss that now is replaying in his mind. And, and what we get, just a sample of it, is is maybe a hundred thou, maybe talk, talking money boy. Are you listening to me? Uh, it's pretty nightmarish, actually. But this then switches to a sex dream about a woman who is definitely not Barbie. And this is a dream about Ken's prowess, I guess, Ken's masculinity. It's aggressive. There's a random dollar sign in the text of this sex scene here. And the artwork as well for Ken's dream is pretty disturbing. It's it's distorted. I'm not really actually sure how to describe it, Brent, other than to say that it's kind of Max Headroomish. You probably have a better way to describe it than that. <laughs> no, I think Max Headroomish is a good way to describe it. And I mean, going back to the depiction of the boss um, in the beginning of the dream, He's got a kind of a very square head. He looks essentially just like the building, which has windows where the eyes would be and a bunch of clustered windows where the teeth would be. Um, but at the bottom of that page, he looks like Frankenstein's monster where like there is um, clearly a scar that's been stitched together and his hair seems to, you know, maybe not be hair, but it's just the top of his head and it's. It's really kind of terrifying. In some ways, it's kind of the stereotypical, like, insider life of the serial killer where, you know, you think like, oh, well, he was such a nice guy. But, <laughs> like, deep down, like, these are the terrible things he thinks about. On the other hand, it, it's – the question is, you know, in Ken dreams is the way that none of these people are depicted as having nightmares. It's all that they have dreams. But dream nightmares are dreams. So I also wonder, like, is this – is, is this something that Ken actually likes or is this just the way that Ken actually experiences the world and his brain then digests it in terms of, you know, the focus on money and the focus on kind of a very Wall Street kind of uh, the film kind of view of, yeah. of, of kind of existence? I, I do wonder, you know, something that that, that I was thinking about as you, you were going through this, Brent, is, is the question of whether or not this really is Ken's day. That's kind of how I pitched it and, and was going to think of this in terms of, of being boring, being mundane, just working through what his day is like, But uh, which, which is so different from what we get from the other, other dreamers, uh, for the most part, where things are kind of aspirational or fantastic in some sense. But actually, I wonder if this is also fantastic in some sense that, that although I would not want this job that he is dreaming about, maybe Ken wants this job. Maybe Ken right now is just in the mailroom or uh, an intern or, I don't know, working at a blockbuster or something and this is the dream he wants he wants to be trading mutual funds and this is aspirational for him in some way i read this as being uh, the type of nightmare you have when this is your job if we look at it as he is having a nightmare and this is uncomfortable to him then i think then he becomes more sympathetic but i think later when we see the melding of the dreams perhaps this is aspirational perhaps this is the way he actually enjoys thinking about the way he's going about existence. And some of it may be wish fulfillment. Some of it may be actual um, memories that are just kind of playing out. But the one thing I just have to say straight up is I Ken comes across as just terrible um, from his dreams. And after where we were last issue with a bunch of serial killers, he comes across as kind of a banal and kind of, harmless terrible which is good versus if we were going from something other than serial killers straight to this i think we'd feel far more 
concerned about Ken and the effect he would have on other people, um, given that we have a lot of things where people with mental health issues end up sometimes harming people around them. Um, but in this case, it just kind of comes, comes across like this is his inner world and it's terrible, but it doesn't affect us. So, okay. But I, he comes across as the least kind of sympathetic way than all of the characters and kind of the least interesting in that way too. Although I think the fun choice of varying fonts and throwing in characters and stuff, which I think probably means a lot comes across very differently to us now that we're used to texting and kind of shorter ways of clipping things than, you know, using the number two for the word two, for instance, like, um, to is, is something that I think we're more akin to now, but it was probably a lot more of a clever way to approach things when this came out in the um, early nineties. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gaiman had his pulse here on on uh, the, the cyberpunk future of of texting, and and Ken's dream maybe is cold and, and actually kind of cyberpunkish might be might be a good way to to put it. But Barbie's dream couldn't possibly be more different. This is a heartwarming fantasy hero's quest, right? The the coloring here is all bright and beautiful. Uh, she has been, we discover, uh, having uh, an existence in this dream world for quite some time. She's been on a quest to find the the Corpentine, which is a confection of spun silver and rose quartz. It is magical. It's necessary for preserving the, the herogram. Of course, right, we don't know what any of these things actually mean, but we don't have to. They're just MacGuffins in this uh, this fantasy quest that is both comforting and, and formulaic. Uh, comforting because uh, it is formulaic, because we know exactly what's going on without actually having to know exactly what's going on. And Barbie, uh, really, I guess Barbara, she is called here. So Barbara is aided by Martin Tenbones, who's a sentient speaking four-legged creature who, to me, looks like a cross between a St. Bernard and a bison but again there might be some other ways of describing him and arrayed against them is the villain of the story the cuckoo and his disciples we're not going to see them on the page Uh, and in fact this is really all we get of this dream which i have to say is a shame because i would definitely read this book i would watch this cartoon this story here just looks absolutely delightful but what really stands out here is the contrast between ken and barbie's dreams and i love the the two-page spread here that dringenberg uses to show us uh, just the fact even that they are physically separated from each other in the the bed and I, I think we're meant to infer that maybe their relationship isn't that healthy well or just you know that they are very different people i think that it, we've seen them be kind of unsettling the same and finishing their sentences and so lockstep and Maybe that seemed a little unhealthy too, and this just skews the opposite way entirely. We'll have to see. And spoilers for what goes ahead, we don't get a lot of uh, Barbie, Barbara's dreams, and what's going on with Martin Tenbones and and the Cuckoo uh, in this particular volume, uh, but they will return in the future. Um, So we'll get a lot more about that and um, uh, see more into that dream world, which is just Martin Tenbones instantly, unlike the instant revulsion, I think we feel towards the way um, things are depicted in uh, Ken's dreams. Martin Tenbones immediately comes across like the kind of fun, lovable, where the wild things are monster that you want to hang out with. Yeah, Martin Tenbones is awesome. And and we should point out that although he is sentient, he's speaking, uh, he is also transportation for Barbara. And I would trade in my car for 
Martin Tenbones' cousin in a heartbeat. I mean, <laughs> I realize it probably would make my commute time longer, but it would be way awesomer. Martin Tenbones, cool, cool character. I mean, he was instantly a fan favorite, so it was no surprise that, that Gaiman uh, brings him back uh, without spoiling anything about the future. I think it's also really cool the way in which Gaiman uh, brings all of this back. And and to the idea that that maybe actually this doesn't signal uh, something unhealthy, I guess maybe I was looking ahead a, a little bit towards the end of the issue. But yeah, I guess you're right. Also, just the there, there's a real creepiness to their uh, Stepford kind of identicalness uh, that they have in the waking world, and then we just see that that's not something that is real, something that exists in their subconscious. And so somewhere something fake is going on. And I guess I took that to be an indicator that they're not even maybe genuine with each other, which is maybe something we will see when we get to, to one of the last scenes here in the in the issue. Uh, I'm, I'll, yeah, and I'll be really interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. And then um, we cut to Chantel and Zelda's dreams. And similar to Ken and Barbie, um, there's a great uh, work that's done with the layout of kind of placing these next to each other and showing them in bed together, kind of joined together, but then also the very distinct experiences that each of them are having. And Chantel's is just out there. It's it's great. Um, I really wish I ever had dreams that were as fun as hers seem to be, that she's having a relationship with a sentence and you see her like you know, looking carefully through a book and kissing the book. Now of note, the book has a big letter Z on it. So I'm wondering if the book in this way is Zelda. Yeah, I think it, I think it has to be. And and we're going to see when we, we do Zelda's dream in a, in a minute that Chantel features there as well. And so it is the exact opposite of what we get from Ken and Barbie and that signal to us in every way. But yeah, this, this dream that Chantel is having, this is like a, a Borges story or, or something like that. There's a real magical realism here. And it's just a delightful little story. This is just a fantastic bit of flash fiction. And I think it's actually just worth reading it uh, entirely into the microphone here because it's, uh, it's so beautiful. And I, I just love Love the way that Gaiman writes this uh, so much. So here, here's what he does actually write. Chantel is having a relationship with a sentence. Just one of those things. A chance meeting that grew into something important for both of them. They like the same things. She took it to a party. They were a big hit. The perfect couple. Everybody knows about her in the sentence. The sentence spent most of last year in Czechoslovakian for political reasons, but it was translated back into English. In order to stop the sentence being deported, Chantel has arranged to have it read into the Library of Congress. However... When the time comes, she discovers that she can no longer read. She has no idea what her sentence is about. Despondent and joyless, Chantel begins to cry. And I, I don't know what the word count on that is, but it is very short. But it tells this whole heartbreaking and also nightmarish, uh, panicky story uh, in, in just, you know, really one paragraph, basically. It's masterful. It's really great. Um, and the art is, it's just fantastic. Um, the company, it, and, and the f- the fun that's being done here in the lettering and the font choices and the alignment of it. And, you know, it's, it's great. Similarly great uh, in many ways, visually is what Zelda is dreaming. And I I do want to note the annotated Sandman notes here that um, in the script, there are instructions um, that Zelda um, should bear a striking resemblance to Alice um, in Wonderland from uh, Sir John uh, Tenniel's illustrations of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland from 1865. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's unmissable here, unmistakable. She looks exactly exactly like Alice in Wonderland. Zelda's just having notably one kind of long run-on sentence is kind of her thought balloon for all of this. Um, 
in which she is remembering her relationship with her parents and feeling very at home and, you know, in the more kind of Gothic, um, atmosphere of a cemetery and, um, and feeling very connected and lucky to have found Chantel. I, I don't even know where to start. There's so much kind of packed into it, but I, well, what about it struck you, Glenn? There is a lot going on in this dream. This might be the most packed of the the dreams that we get. And uh, I, I did I neglected to say anything actually about the the font of either Chantel's dream or Barbara's dream. But all of the dream fonts that we have so far are not your standard dream font, which is just a, you know a, a wonderful choice. It's a great way to use the the medium. But yeah, there's the stream of consciousness here, the run on sentences, and also the lack of any spacing or any punctuation between the words just really conveys a sense of of maybe panic, but certainly urgency here in the dream. And the narrative, I guess, is that that Zelda's been told by her parents to go away. We're going to get more about that in just a moment. But we also learned that Zelda doesn't want to encounter her parents again. So it's kind of a mutual feeling, apparently. And one of the events of Zelda's dream is that she sees a woman in a veil and she hopes that's going to turn out to be Chantel. Of course, they wear veils together in their their waking life. But she's very much worried that behind the veil, that's actually going to turn out to be her mother. And then when she lifts the veil and sees a, a spider like this, an actual freaking spider head, which is something that should be scary... Uh, she is relieved, as I guess that that is a subconscious depiction of Chantel there. And, you know, there's something clearly surreal here, not quite Dolly level surreal, but certainly something surreal here that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I do want to briefly talk about when we've seen Chantel and Zelda on the waking world. Awake, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Chantel has been the one who speaks. Zelda is the one who does not. And Chantel oftentimes will say that Zelda has a story or has a, you know, something to say or Zelda frequently says. So there's an indication that Zelda isn't mute. She does speak. It's just that only Chantel really hears her speak. And I find that interesting when then racked and stacked versus these kind of two dreams where Chantel feels the very important need to say something from the Z book to protect it and to, you know, by, by speaking it aloud, kind of by communicating for Zelda, she is protecting Zelda. And meanwhile, Zelda very much is kind of concerned with the way people other than Chantel have ever reacted to her. So perhaps it's just that she um, is very kind of protective and shy um, as a result of how she's interfacing with anyone else, because um, she knows she can be herself with Chantel, but she doesn't maybe feel the level of comfort to express herself in words when she interfaces with Rose and, and, and Hal and everyone else in the house, as far as we've seen. And if we're thinking of these dreams as as showing us who these characters are, on the inside, right? Not who their uh, not who their persona in the the waking world or awake the real world is, but but who they really feel they are deep down. Then uh, Zelda is a scared little girl who is running through this uh, pretty horrifying landscape because the the other thing that is going on in Zelda's dream is that she populates it with bits of weird fiction. Uh, the very first panel that we get here takes place in a cemetery. You pointed that out, Brent. And she thinks about this cemetery almost entirely in the vocabulary of Clark Ashton Smith, who, uh, along with uh, Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft, was one of the, the Weird Tales big three in the, the 1920s uh, and the 1930s. And to dream Zelda... 
this is not just a cemetery. It's a necropolis. Uh, it has a charnel charm. There are uh, there are faceless slaves. There's a forbidden house of the the nameless, uh, and 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 so on. We could we could read the whole thing, and it's all just phrases like that. It's all straight out of Clark Ashton Smith. But we also get Zelda telling Chantel a story, and this is this is something that's happening. We should say because the the dreams are starting to bleed into each other, and um, Chantel actually starts to have a second dream that we only get one image of, and it's it's a uh, a pirate asking the the captain of the ship or something like that to to tell him a story, and Zelda hears that in her dream, and so she starts to tell a story, and the story that Zelda decides to tell to Chantel here is essentially a story by M.R. James, and it's a story called Lost Hearts, which is going to be the title of the next issue, and I don't remember that issue having anything to do with this M.R. James story, but uh, I'm excited to find out what the connection is that's going on there, and what I want to do actually right now, uh, I, I know I keep wanting to do this, but I, I want to just read some text here again. I want to read the James text first and then compare it with what Gaiman does here. And we should say that there is no indication on the page, right, that this is a, a paraphrase or an adaptation of the, the James story. But here is how James tells this story. This is the opening paragraph of Lost Hearts. Uh, it goes like this. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Aswerby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. So that's the James. And so here now is what Gaiman does when he has Zelda try to, I guess, try to remember this opening in her dream. So Zelda tells the story this way. In September of the year 1911, a post-chaise drew up before Aswerby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy who jumped out as soon as it had stopped looked around him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. So Zelda's pretty close here. She's actually done a really good job of remembering this passage in her dream. But what really jumped out to me here, why this this jumped out to me, is just that Brandon and I have done this story over on Elder Sign. I think it was actually our, our third or fourth episode. But also because when we did our year in review show for 2019, I had selected the very next paragraph as one of my favorite passages that we had covered uh, on the entire show <laughs> that year. And I just want to say that I'm glad to see that Gaiman agrees with me. Uh, this really is a great story. Story. James has such a, a gorgeous prose style. And just to say to listeners, if you have not read Lost Hearts, I highly recommend it. And then, hey, you can come listen to me and Brandon talk about it on uh, Elder Sign, our, our weird fiction podcast. But uh, back to this podcast, I'm really interested in the character of Zelda here because, right, she seems to have found refuge from a troubled childhood by reading weird fiction, by reading all this, uh, this horror fiction, right? And now has built a relationship with Chantel, who is also a lover of books, though though maybe in, in something of a, of a different way. Uh, but I love their relationship and the way that books and stories and writing is at the, the heart of it. This is a great idea. Yeah, it, it really is great. Um, and the annotated Sandman notice, notes um, regarding the M.R. Jane story that the, the issue has the date as in the September of the year 1911. As you said, the short story actually reads in the year 1811. Um, Neil Gaiman in an interview noted that he was using um, a juvenile – edited version of the story instead of the original. And hence that's the reason why the date was wrong here, that it wasn't something intentional where he was trying to uh, move it forward a hundred years in terms of her recollection or anything. Um, it would have otherwise been the beginning of that story as well. The in September of the year, 1811. 
Oh, interesting. So does does he say what book this is? Like, I, I want to know what this book is that is taking M.R. James stories and then rewriting them for, for kids. I have a vested interest in this now. The the annotated Sandman doesn't note that. So we'd have to maybe track down the original interview um, to figure out um, where that is from. Yeah, I, I, I might try to go to Twitter to see if I can uh, get him to, to talk to me about this <laughs> book because I, I need this. I need this book in my life right now. The Annotated Sandman also notes, though, um, as you mentioned, there are um, other references in the beginning of Zelda's dream. Uh, the source of the phrase, quote, old bone orchard, unquote, is impossible to trace. It occurs, for example, in Western poet Wallace Irwin's uh, Love Sonnets of a Hoodlum from 1901, and that Elvis Costello uses the phrase in the 1982 song Beyond Belief, which probably is given Neil's frequent uh, joy of including lyrics and song titles. Um, particularly from artists such as Elvis Costello. Um, that's probably why it was on the mind. Um, and the, in that, I, I can't even say the sentence because it's the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> but there is also the words that appear <laughs> forbidden brides of the faceless slaves in the nameless house of the night of dread desire. Um, and that's actually a short story written by Neil Gaiman. Neil actually wrote this story, uh, it, the Annotated Sandman says he wrote it in 2004 for the collection of Gothic, and it was reprinted in Fragile Things, Fragile Things being one of Neil Gaiman's short stories collections. I actually um, picked up my copy of Fragile Things and read the story uh, again, as well as revisited um, in the intro Neil's uh, discussion of the story. And he mentions he actually wrote it time frame wise when he was 22 or 23. So it would have been. Um, almost a decade before the Sandman uh, was written, probably at least eight years, uh, and that it he showed it some people and it didn't get traction. Um, a lot of people didn't particularly care for the script, um, and so he shelved it. Um, and later he found it when he was looking for something for this gothic. It's got an exclamation point, so I feel like I have to say gothic. <laughs> uh, so he reworked it in two thousand four for that collection. Um, but that is a fun little uh, short story uh, about someone who is living in an over-the-top gothic horror setting where just ridiculous things are constantly happening. And he is trying to record and be a writer and record what actually happens, which also then is a bunch of over-the-top crazy uh, things that is string together of just a bunch of tropes, essentially. It's a very funny short story. I encourage people to check it out. I forgot what the story was about. So when I went into it, um, I was initially off put by it for about the first page or two because um, it skips between the author of the story and the story he's writing. And both of them are ridiculous. And so you kind of find them both to be obnoxious. But as soon as you realize that's the point, you can kind of embrace it in both parts and just fall into it and. So uh, that line, obviously, Neil had written it again um, almost a decade before the issue. So he must have just really liked that particular collection of words. Um, so he's not referencing himself so much as um, I think when all of us who write occasionally think of things that we think sound really clever, we bank that expression and then occasionally find excuses to drop it in. So um, <laughs> and how can you not love the forbidden brides of the faceless slaves in the nameless house of the night of dread desire? 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely an awesome phrase. I know I must have read this story then because I have fragile things on my shelf as well, but I don't remember this story and it does not sound like it is the Clark Ashton Smith pastiche that it sounds like it ought to be. You know, we will be taking a little break from the, the Sandman in, in between volumes. That's something we, we've, we've done already in between volumes one and two. We're, we're near the end of volume two here. We have uh, allowed our Patreon supporters to select at least one thing that we're going to be looking at uh during that break, but there's no reason we couldn't throw this story on to do an episode about uh, as well. It seems like it might be relevant to do kind of in the immediate aftermath here of this issue. So maybe we'll, we'll keep that in mind. So then we move on to Hal dreams and we get Hal's dream and immediately we get uh, images of Betty Davis, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, and they're come to tell him the big secret. He's always suspected there was a big secret. Um, and then he, we get a, a bit of Wizard of the Oz, uh, Wizard of Oz kind of imagery, where Judy Garland, as depicted in the um, nineteen thirty nine film of Wizard of Oz, um, takes off her face, and underneath it, she is the Wicked Witch of the West, and then she takes off her face again. And I didn't quite understand who the face was in the third panel, Glenn, but the annotated Sandman um, clarifies that it's specifically supposed to be, according to the script the wizard himself quote elderly uh. balding imperiously humbugging okay so i thought this was the cowardly lion uh not not the lion I- itself but the, the the human farm worker who supplies the the lion in that in that dream and and i think i thought maybe cowardly lion and then the the mask she's holding reminds me of kind of scarecrow in batman's continuity um mask which we've seen scarecrow appear in issues of sandman before so um, but apparently it's supposed to, in the script, be the Wizard of Oz himself. And now that I know that, I do see how the face does look kind of like the Wizard of Oz from the 1939 film. I think it's just the braids that are throwing me off. Yeah, I guess maybe that actually kind of looks like a lion's mane. So, you know, if you're thinking about it in those terms, maybe is why I was thrown off. It's been a long time since I have, have watched this movie, though Gene Wolfe is invoking it in like every other short story uh, through the entire 1970s where Brandon and I still are right now. So it's kind of uh, negligent, I suppose, that I have not bothered to watch The Wizard of Oz again. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll do a Patreon episode on The Wizard of Oz as well, if that's something uh, people would like us to do. But I do like this dream quite a bit, right? I mean, we're, we're getting here... Uh, this idea of of there being some kind of secret that everyone knows that Hal doesn't know, and then we've got this nightmare here about the Wizard of Oz being really about layers of of hidden identities, and and this seems to be on Hal's mind, right? Because he he has this life as a, a drag queen as as well, and so maybe has maybe he himself isn't sure who he really is if he is Hal or if he's Dolly the drag queen. Uh, you know, I do not wear the mask. The mask wears me or something, something along those lines. And Hal has, um, I think maybe the most relatable to me moment in the issue where he briefly wakes up. And I just want to read this from the script because I feel like I felt this somewhat time, uh, sometimes before where lost it, some dream, a good dream, woke up, sort of retreat back into warm, back into comfort, back into, and then he's trying to remember what he was trying to remember. And I don't think I've had dreams about Judy Garland. Maybe I have, and I just don't recall, but, uh, but I've done that where I've woken up in the middle of the night and I, I'm just, 
I'm I'm kind of awake. I'm kind of not. I'm not that happy to wake. I know it was warm and comforting where I was, and I'm trying to recollect the last thing I remember from the dream because I want to re-engage with the dream, basically like picking up the book and starting again where I left off just because um, that was a comforting place to be. Yeah, but our, our minds always betray us. We never end up back in the dream we wanted to get to. And the harder we try, probably the worse off we are. And and Hal has uh, another dream. You know, he This is when he goes into the Wizard of Oz dream. But then later on in the issue, we do get a, a third dream from Hal. And, and this one is really heartbreaking because here he's he's dreaming of uh, of an, an ex, a former romantic partner, Robert. But he's not dreaming about Robert as Robert really was uh, because he turned out to be callow, self-centered dishonest, but he's dreaming about Robert the way that Hal always wanted him to be, the way that he he dreamed of him. And then there's a real sense of of heartbreak and, and, and loneliness here that, that underlies Hal, who, uh, you know, his persona in the waking world is so so kind and and warm and, and generous. And, and this is a real glimpse into some, some pain that he doesn't seem to show other people because he himself is kind of a caretaker. So that brings us to the end of, of, of the dreams of the housemates. But there is actually a plot that connects all of these dreams together here in the Azu Show. So we can turn to that now. And that plot begins with Rose, who is struggling to fall asleep. She's struggling to deal with everything that happened uh, the previous issue back in Collectors. Jed's coma, Funland, and also the pale stranger she can now barely remember but she does fall asleep and she begins to dream. And that takes us to the dreaming where Dream and his Raven Matthew are watching the vortex, uh, the vortex that is Rose Walker. Dream says that this vortex is different than the others that he's dealt with before, but he's really cryptic about it. We don't learn anything specific before we switch back to Rose's perspective. And in her dream, Rose becomes aware of the dreams of everyone else in the house. And she now understands her housemates here. She she understands them as people through their dreams. And she breaks down the walls that are separating the, these dreams and, and the dreams crash together. They're caught in a, a, a maelstrom or I, I suppose we should I say they're caught in a vortex and it is going to spiral out of control as Rose begins to sense the dreams even of people outside the house, the the, the people in the, the town here, but then even all the dreams everywhere and she sees how simple it would be to create one huge dream for everyone to, to live in, everyone to exist in. And so at this point, Dream intervenes. He says, enough. Uh, Rose, he goes on to indicate here, has caused a great deal of damage, but it's nothing he can't repair. But in any case, it is time for them to talk. And so he takes her to someplace really magical. It's, it's some cool rock hoodoos that uh, I, I, I guess I imagine that this is the dream version of Bryce Canyon. Uh, not that Bryce Canyon needs any improvement. Uh, but then he says, and he, and he does this again cryptically. It's kind of what he does. That's his MO. He says, we are already here. It has begun. But that is all we're going to get of this main plot in this issue. We, we, we've still got a few loose ends to tie up before we bring this issue to a close. But the, the mystery of what is a vortex and the mystery of in what way Rose is different from the previous vortices and what desire and despair who we haven't seen uh, in like 100 pages, uh, what they <laughs> have had to do with it. All of that is going to have to wait until the next issue, which is the last issue in this storyline. So... um for the last two pages, we're kind of treated to, I mean, uh, epilogue isn't the right term, but we're, we're 
the the action that we've just departed of uh, Rose and Dream, um, where it has begun, um, hanging out, and we cut to um, Matthew flying into the hospital. Matthew not being a big fan of hospitals, he then talks to uh, Gilbert. And to remind our um, readers, or for those who are unaware, um, the Annotated Sandman does a nice job of kind of summarizing this. So I'm going to go ahead and read from it um, in terms of Matthew's prior life. Matthew uh, was Matthew Cable, who was a government agent who pursued Swamp Thing. Um, as the killer of Al Colland, even though Al Colland became Swamp Thing, it's confusing. Later, Cable obtains the power to alter reality, using it to debase his marriage with Abigail Arcane, friend to the Swamp Thing, um, later lover of Swamp Thing, um, with obscene sexual acts. And then he had a, suffered an automobile accident while he was drunk, and he lied in a coma in a hospital where he was kept alive um, by a hospital administrator who was just using him as an organ farm. And in that issue, uh, in an issue of Swamp Thing from uh, March of 1989, um, Swamp Thing number 84, um, Morpheus appeared to Cable uh, in his coma and uh, counsels him to give up his mortal life to free Abby of their connection. And according to various interviews, Neil Gaiman and Rick Veitch, who was the writer of Swamp Thing at the time, reached an agreement on the incident um, and, quote, special thanks to Neil Gaiman are expressed in the credit for the issue. Um, so that's where Matthew uh, gives up being Matthew Cable and becomes uh, Morpheus Dreams Raven uh, Matthew. Um, but that's the reason why he really doesn't like hospitals, because, um, again, if you're in a coma and being kept alive just so you can be har- have organs harvested from you um, while you're sort of thinking about the terrible, terrible things you had done uh, to your wife, then, yeah. Uh, not a fun place for Matthew to try to return to mentally. No, and it's it's interesting here that that he and 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 Gilbert, because Gilbert is here in in Jed's hospital room, and so now Matthew and 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 Gilbert are gonna have uh, I guess a little moment over this because right Matthew used to be a person and now he's a dream and he prefers it that way. This is uh, maybe kind of his redemption. Uh, we're gonna learn more about Matthew. He's he's not going away. He's gonna be a character in the ongoing saga here, but. Gilbert has kind of the exact opposite thing going on here, right? Gilbert, he says here, we learn finally that Gilbert is a dream. He's a dream who has left the dreaming in order to become a person, to go live in our world. And he doesn't want to go back. But of course, he has to go back now. And he knew this was coming. He's known this since Collectors. That was one of the things that he was freaking out about in that issue. I mean, you know, mostly he was freaking out about the Corinthian being present, but also he knew he wasn't going to be able to to get away. And I think it's actually really telling that the last thing that Gilbert the Dream does with his freedom here in the, the real world is to care for Jed, to try to to heal Jed from the the things that the other three powerful dreams that had that escaped while dream was imprisoned did to jed right this is brute and glob and then also the corinthian uh, rather than really try to go hide from from dream gilbert is, is trying to repair the the damage that his uh, associates have done here in the world it's a it's a really brilliant touch uh because gaiman doesn't necessarily even have to call attention to that he just lets it be there on the page and here uh gilbert informs matthew that uh, because rose's vortex Morpheus is going to kill Rose or at least terminate to their physical existence. Um, and uh, in an earlier version of the script, there's actually a, a discussion back and forth between Matthew and Gilbert. Um, the annotated Sandman notes that the earlier version threw out the possibility that there are a number of ways that Dream could approach 
the problem of a vortex, but the simplest one is the one that dream will likely take and that's to kill them. Um, so I, I don't get the same sense in, in the final version that there are the options, um, that are put out or at least that, um, Gilbert is aware of them. Right. Because otherwise I, I would expect Gilbert to be advocating in some, in, in some way, either just here to Matthew or to dream himself for the other way. Maybe that will happen in the next issue, but that is not how I recall this, uh, this happening. Uh, and, and Gilbert here seems genuinely shocked and, and, uh, not, maybe not quite heartbroken, but, but affected by the fact that he knows now that, that Rose is going to have to die. And, and he does also say that this is, uh, it does also say that this is the only time that dream is empowered to take human life. The only circumstance under which he is empowered to take human life. And then he, he characterizes this by saying it's one of the rules. And the big question I have here, right? Cause this is a pretty big revelation, but it, the, the big question that I have about this is whose rules is Gilbert talking about? Are, are, are these rules that are imposed on dream by someone else or a group of someone else? Or are these dreams own rules for himself, like his own operating procedures that he feels like he, he has to, to follow. I know we can't tell in this issue yet, but that's the question I have. Yeah. And we've seen this crop up a couple times before um, with other suggestions of rules or um, obligations, roles that all the endless might play. Um, that they might all be bound to specific things they collectively are bound to or individual parts of their given aspect they're bound to. But this whole idea that there is some external authority, whether that is an individual or manifestation like a some kind of a God or whether it's just more of even a physics property of like, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> this is the way that light the speed at which light travels and this is the constant and you're not going to change that. So, um, it's not entirely clear. Um, and we'll have to see as we go forward, the idea of whose rules, um, but also then what are the consequences when someone bakes or breaks or bends a rule and are the consequences different depending on the rule or depending on the individual who may bake or break or bend them. Cause as we'll see going forward, occasionally, um, some people seem to have more catastrophic effects of, um, breaking certain rules versus others, um, who maybe don't seem to, um, have such a deleterious effect to themselves, at least, um, if they decide, no, the rules just don't apply to me. Yeah, that's a great observation because there is this dual understanding of what we mean by rule, how we use that word in in English. Uh, that are we talking about? It's a property of the universe, or it's a rule of the universe, meaning that it's just not possible for Dream to take a human life, except in this circumstance. Like he could try, but it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't work. It's not functionally possible. Or is it the rule in the sense of you're not supposed to do this, and if you do, you'll be punished? Uh, Gilbert does not make that clear here uh but uh this is too big of a of an idea here for this to be tossed out casually so i do expect that we're gonna see something about this in the future well, before we go, we need to backtrack just a, a little bit. We do get uh, a coda with the dreamers in the house. We're also going to check in with Miranda and Unity back in England. Uh, let's do the, the dreamers first. And, and I'm really interested in this. Uh, Ken wakes up. He's feeling troubled and, and horny is what we get here. Uh, and Barbie is crying. Uh, and Gaiman writes this. Ken says things to her then in the darkness that he would later regret. And the image is the the two of them in bed facing away from each other and also very far apart. I mean, this 
here this looks like a king size bed in this image where it looked like i don't know a full size bed or a queen size bed when we saw it previously but Again, we get Chantel and Zelda being kind of the opposite image here. They have the the opposite response to their dreams. And so when we see them, when we check in with them, they are holding each other in the dark. And and there's no need for them to, to speak in order to be sharing their feelings with each other. And then Hal wakes up alone with a feeling of dread in the pit of his stomach. Uh, He can hear Ken talking through the walls. And then after a while, he goes uh, upstairs to check on Rose. But Rose is not there. and, and, And somehow Hal is not actually surprised by that. And then... In England, Unity Kincaid has been in a coma while Miranda's been watching over her, but now Unity wakes up and she tells Miranda that she wants Rose to have her dollhouse when she dies. And and Unity is dying now and she knows it and she wishes that her parents could be there. And I think we should remember that although Unity Kincaid is an old woman here in this issue, she's really only been awake for a few years of her life. And for Miranda, right, this is just an an impossible situation, right? The the mother she only just learned that she had is dying. And so here she is in England with her, but her son is in a coma on the other side of the ocean and she can't be in both places at once. So it is an impossible situation, but she thinks, of course, that at least Rose is all right, but that's dramatic irony, textbook case of it, because we, the audience, know that Rose isn't. And I love that Gaiman checks in with all of these characters again before we go, but I especially love the way that Gaiman uses just a, a two-page spread to to show us these these minor characters, the, the dreamers, and, and to really make them all come alive, to make them feel real to us by showing us their emotional lives and their the response to these dreams. But I do have a question about what is going on with Ken and, and Barbie here. We, we prefigured that a little bit an hour ago or so, I guess, because I found Gaiman's line about the words that Ken will regret. I found that to be ambiguous. And so I'm wondering, Brent, do you think that Ken said like mean, hurtful things to, to Barbie in this situation? Or is it that he actually opened up to her, that he made himself vulnerable and that that's what he's going to regret later? And it's, it, I I think it could be either. I I think that it it as you said it it is ambiguous. It's left open. It could be that he shared what his dreams are. It could be that he talked about dreaming where he is, you know, having sex with some other woman. Um or it could even just be that he thinks so much about work. Or it could be that she had opened up about what her dreams were about and perhaps he, you know, chided her for having from his viewpoint, perhaps like childish dreams were like, no, no, you should, I'm thinking about money and going to work and you're thinking about daydreams and porcupines and, um, Martin <laughs> ten bones. Like it's, and it could even be, I mean, oftentimes couples fight about money. So maybe it's, if, if, Maybe it's, it's, it's about money. It might be that they're not fighting about the dreams, but they're fighting about the things that the dreams bring to the front where, Again, he's dreaming of maybe being with someone else and he's dreaming of making money and she's dreaming of some fantastical world and they're both realizing the disconnect, which you alluded to earlier, um, uh, but also that he maybe doesn't want her or she thinks that or he thinks there's a problem with her dream. Um, but uh, we're very much left with the fact that he is the one who says things that are to be regretted. So. Um, It could be that he's opened up or it could be that he has um, decided to judge things that she has opened up about. 
Yeah, and I don't know that we're ever going to find out what has gone on here, but I, I will say I would read that short story if someone in the audience wants to uh, write a bit of fan fiction about what has happened here. What is the conversation that uh, that Hal has overheard through the through the walls? Uh, it is maybe interesting that it is Hal hears Ken talking and not. Barbie, though that may just be about um, uh, tones of voice and and uh, speaking volumes in, in the middle of the night and so on. But uh, I don't know. That'd be a good hook for that story too, to be telling it from from Hal's perspective. Anyway, I would read that bit of fan fiction if someone wants to wants to do that. I, I will note it's not that it's my least favorite panel because I don't necessarily have the least favorite panel, and I really like the art in this panel because the depiction of um, them, particularly from where they were before, where they were lying next to each other, um, and now they look, you know very much distant and, and the panel does a great job conveying that the one disappointment I have is, and I don't know if it was just that uh, it was detail left off for some other reason um, or if it was, there wasn't time to do the inking on it. But um, when we first see them in bed together, Barbie's pillowcase is different than Ken's. Uh, it's got this great kind of checkered pattern to it. And in this panel, when we see them again, separated, they, they both, their pillows are, basically unseen they're just kind of shadows but it's inverted so they're just patches of kind of lighter color um but we no longer see that her pillowcase is different and so i was disappointed because i really liked when we first saw her pillowcase and it was the one of the big differences between them other than what was going on in their heads Right. And that pillowcase is the same color scheme as the dress that she wears in her dream world. So, uh, yeah, I wanted I wanted to see that again. I wanted to make sure that that was, you know, really real in the in the in the waking world. Uh, and because that would have told us so much, actually, about about Barbara. Right. Uh, that would have been really interesting to see. Uh, is, there's no, no there's no note on the on the uh, the check no, on the disappearing. <laughs> yeah. Tra- yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. there's not. My guess is it was just a decision that was made to not draw attention from the figures and to crowd kind of the, the, the panel essentially. Um, and also originally the decision might've been made in the original panel to checker it partially because it tips off the explosion of color that comes off of the dream to the side of the pillow. Um, but also because the backdrop for that page for, uh, for Barbie is white while for Ken it's black. And if you had just the white pillow, it would, it wouldn't come across as well just to have like a square white thing on top of a white background. So, but it also reminds me of just kind of the dream kind of spewing out of her head onto the pillow. So maybe it's a manifestation of the dream in the real world. Yeah, or just an artistic representation of what is going on in the in the story. Um, though I would like to believe that it, it's it's really happening. That if Ken had woken up just then and flipped over, he would have seen uh, that he has a much cooler pillowcase uh, in his bed than he had uh, when he went to sleep. But that that takes us to the the end of 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 the content here in this issue. We do still have one issue to go in this storyline. Then we're going to do a wrap up episode, and and then as we we invoked earlier, we'll we'll, we'll do at least one, maybe maybe a few. Uh, non-Sandman uh, Neil Gaiman pieces before we uh, we pick back up with uh, the continuation of the, the Sandman. But we've got a few things to do before we close out this episode. Uh, the first thing, though, I think we should do, Brent, is, is go back to something you raised at the beginning and talk about Jed, Jed's dream. Is Jed's dream in here at all as we were going through it, flipping through the pages uh, again and talking about them? Did you see anything that seems like it's Jed here? The only thing that I thought might be Jed. And again, it's only because 
I had read that in the Untamed Sandman and then I was rereading the issue was when we see Rose in Dream and she's doing her literal vortex thing where we see swirling that that might in part be also the remnants of the Dream Dome and that little bit of cosmos that's kind of caught up in that. And again, it's I'm it's headcanon for me to insert that in there because there's literally nothing in the panel. But for me to imagine it there or the kind of the desolate place where dream and rose end up could be kind of rock outcroppings that is all that is left from that world i i don't know um it's i don't i don't see anything um i really have to head cannon to fit it in because intentionally when we cut to jed it's just we cut to we cut to gilbert visiting jed in the hospital we see him sit down next to his jed's bed and then we cut right out and that's the only image we really have of jed until uh, the last two issues again. He's just he's he's essentially a prop, um, in in the background for Gilbert reacting to things and then Gilbert talking to Matthew. Did you see anything though? I I, I did not, and so I'm really interested in this this line that you you read from the annotated Sandman. This is something I would love to to take up on the on the forum. I think that would be a, a lot of fun to discuss, especially if if uh, there's someone out in the audience who uh, knows a little bit more about this and maybe something Gaiman has said in in some other places uh, that maybe there was a bit of Jed's dream that was was cut from this. Yeah, I'd love to love to know more about that if anyone has any knowledge. But um, I guess with that out of the way, we should uh, we should talk about the uh, the cover image here. The Dave McKean cover image. Uh, this one might be a little bit easier, easier than some that we have done uh, in this volume here in the the Dallas House. But uh, Brent, what's going on in the cover? So in the cover, we've got uh, either Chantel or Zelda uh, as kind of the wearing the white bridal veil with spiders um, on it, um, and then we've got um, additional spider spiders and lace um, on either side or other insects that are kind of dead. And there's almost like a honeycomb or maybe charred bit of wood in the middle. I can't quite make out what that is. What do you think that is, Glenn? Yeah, I think that's honeycomb, actually. And I, I think there's even kind of a butterfly image in some of the lace. So spiders and and butterflies and and bees here. I'm not sure what to do with all of that, other than that they're, they're bugs. And uh, maybe just Dave McKean decided that well, since he was told to put spiders in this, that he could put some other bugs as well. The honeycomb certainly look really cool. I mean, this is one of the coolest covers, I think, in terms of uh, of the, the sort of backdrop, the kind of uh, non-center uh, uh, focal point here. I think it's very cool. Yeah. And in terms of Chantel and Zelda, the honeycomb kind of is an image of, you know, something that is very sweet, but it's, it's wrapped in something which is not. Um, and also you have to be very careful or else you'll kind of get stung getting to that. Um, so it's something that's kind of unpleasant until you get below kind of the protective layers, um, which is kind of what Zelda has had to build up. Um, because of the reaction from her parents and others to, to her, well, to her over a time. So, well, the title now Brent into the night, um, I might have a few things to say about this, but I wonder if you have the same things to say about this that I do. And in particular, I want to know if Neil Gaiman has anything to say about this without thinking about the story, just into the night as the, on the splashed on the first page, you're thinking that either there's going to be, you know, a noir kind of chase scene or it's going to be an 80s, you know, rock themed kind of meeting in a bar and kind of lost lover kind of scenario thing playing out in three to four minute long pop song. But uh, 
you know, here we have that they're all kind of moving, but almost nobody moves. They're all, it's all everyone actually returning home, but then the night is where the dreams are finding them. And eventually even Rose is found by everyone else's dreams, if not her own. And so I think that's what's going on, but I don't know. What were your thoughts on it? Well, I think that is definitely what's going on. You have given the the real explanation here, but we have seen Gaiman being so elusive here in the, the doll's house that I was just wondering if uh, he had in mind, you know, some kind of illusion that there, because there are a number of things that are called into the, the night, right? There was a, a film in the, the 80s called this, uh, but there also was a pop song called this uh, in the 80s called Into the Night that I, I sort of vaguely remembered um, the older siblings of, of people we knew in grade school uh, listening to this song, but I didn't remember anything about it. And so I went and checked it out and it is called Into the Night and it is by uh, Benny Mardones. It might just be Mardones. And I'm just going to tell everyone to never look this up. Uh, it was the creepiest, <laughs> creepiest music video I have ever ever seen and it has absolutely nothing to do uh with anything that's going on here uh but it was it was real uh, uh it was a love song that was meant to be sweet and tender and maybe some of the lyrics are but the video is totally predatory and to- really really uh creepy so don't don't check that out but i wondered if you had made the same mistake of looking this up and then being transfixed by this horrifying youtube video Lack of preparation pays off again for Brett. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you are absolutely <laughs> doing it right. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I used my prep time to read a game and short story again, and you looked up a music video. <laughs> yeah, that round goes to you, Elf, but uh, I'll, so, well, let's see about next time. Yeah. So what was your favorite panel? I think there were a few to choose from. I also think that... Uh, one or both of us may try to cheat in terms of how we define a panel with this particular issue. Ah, okay. You're uh, well. I think you deserve that a few times because I have been doing it a lot. But I'm actually not going to do that this time for for once. I'm not even picking a big splash panel either. Uh, I really loved Zelda's dream, and in particular the first panel, the the little girl in the bone orchard. Uh, as we talked about already, she looks just like Alice in Wonderland, which is uh, obviously intentional. But instead of exploring Wonderland, she is exploring a Clark Ashton Smith necropolis. And and I will say really that the depiction of this uh, reminds me a lot of a passage in Gene Wolfe's book of the new sun. Uh, that is something that owes a lot to Clark Ashton Smith uh, it, itself. Gene Wolfe's also edited a collection of Clark Ashton Smith stories. Uh, but of course, uh, Neil Gaiman lists as one of his favorite books, Gene Wolfe's book of the new sun. And this necropolis here uh, looks exactly like what I envision when I'm reading one particular paragraph from Wolf's novel there. So this is my favorite panel. Uh, what was yours? Uh, and that's a great panel. Um, and it also reminds me, um, I, this doesn't spoil anything at all. I think to say that in the future, we'll get to see more art of ne- necropoli, um, or a necropolis, at least, um, in Sandman, um, many, many issues down the line. Um, so it's some great imagery. Um, so there are a lot of great splash panels, um, and I'm going to use some of my time now to talk about what I didn't pick. There's the doll's house itself with kind of the cutout rooms of just a one frame. I keep on saying frame. One panel of a dream from everyone's dream. There's the great kind of Ken and Barbie splash panels with, again, that pillowcase is just great. And that was tempting. But um, a little closer to where you landed, Glenn, actually, I think my favorite panel is right above the panel you picked, um, which is <laughs> Chantel's dream. And 
arguably we've got two panels here, but um, the annotated Sandman calls it as one. But it's the Chantel dreams, and then it's her holding the book with the Z with a fantastic ensemble of some kind she's wearing with looks like maybe a cape. And she is reaching her hand around like a wall, and on that wall is um, the first line of the dream with the Chantel is having a relationship with a sentence. Just one of those things, a chance meeting that grew into something important for both of them. And just the font choice is just, uh, I love it there, and I love her hand kind of peeking around the corner, and she's just peeking around the corner, and there's only half the face, and it's just... I. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I think I can call that whole thing one panel. If I can't, I certainly will just take the right-hand side where it's just the text in her hand, which I think also says a lot about um, the strength sometimes that, you know, we can give to letters and decisions about font, um, not just when it comes to great art in comics. We think about the things that the work that the pencilers are doing, and sometimes we think about the work the inkers are doing and the colorists. But um, here just some wonderful stuff that is just the way the text plays on the page. This really reminds me of when we were in high school and in your basement, we wrote some of our favorite quotations from literature uh, on the walls and the the ceiling. It was really the, the decor of your, your basement. We didn't do this one. We kind of dropped the ball on that. So I don't know. We, we might need to rekindle that dream. Yeah. I think if anyone sees me with a permanent marker near a wall anytime soon, they should uh, probably stop me if they don't want me to write that whole thing down. Cause uh, there's a good chance I'm going to put it in uh, my house and in my office and <laughs> in the, you know, Metro and just random graffiti everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. To, I can't wait to read this newspaper article. The, uh, I don't know what your, what your handle will be, but <laughs> Probably Chantel. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. You have to sign it all, Chantel. Uh, I, I would read that story as well if someone wants to write a story. And you can make it about Brent, too. That would be that would really make my day. <laughs> Well, I think now that I am calling for people to write fan fiction about Brent being uh, arrested for uh, graffiti in the, the Metro, uh, it is time to call it a day. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please do visit the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought of Into the Night. You can talk to us about any of the questions that we posed here in this issue uh, or even upload some of your uh, your own fan fiction here if you want to take us up on that. I do also want to say that uh, we have started our own Clay Temple Media uh, subreddit on Reddit. If Reddit is uh, a place that you are on the internet and that is easier or better or funner for you than uh, the forum on our own website, uh, we'll love to see you there. We look forward to talking with you uh, there as well. And if you'd like to support the network and get all sorts of bonuses, please find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. So next time we're going to be doing the very last chapter in The Doll's House, Lost Hearts. We'll be uh, talking about whether it has anything at all to do with that M.R. James story and lots of <laughs> other things. Uh, but until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>